Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is David Huffeld, author of Sell More with Science, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome David Hoffeld back to talk about his book, Sell More with Science, The Mindsets, Traits, and Behaviors that Create Sales Success, published by Tarcher Perigee, an imprint of Penguin Random House. David Hoffeld is the CEO and Chief Sales Trainer at Hoffeld Group, a research-based sales and consulting firm. He's pioneered a sales approach based on research in neuroscience, social psychology, and behavioral economics that's been proven to dramatically increase sales. He has trained and coached salespeople from small and medium-sized businesses to Fortune 500 companies. David has lectured at Harvard Business School and has been featured in Fortune, U.S. News and World Report, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Investors Business Daily, Inc., Forbes, CBS Radio, Fox News Radio, and the Marketing Book Podcast. Okay, that's not really on his bio. I just threw that in. And interesting fact, at the age of 10, he read Dale Carnegie's best-selling book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. David, congratulations on Sell More with Science, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you. I'm excited for our conversation today. Terrific. So I interviewed you in, uh, I published that interview in November of 2016. That was episode 97, okay? So this is going to be episode 376. So that, for those playing the home game, that was 297 episodes ago. So if, if it's okay with you, 297 episodes from now, I will plan on you coming back. So <laughs> I've, I've penciled in uh, episode 673, uh, and that'll be, and everybody mark your calendars, that'll be December 3rd, 2027. So just, you know, there's a place for you here. Now, if you want to write a third book and, and do it even uh, sooner, that's that's fine too. So uh, great to have you back. Well, my pleasure. Boy, I feel so accepted right now, knowing that I have a place <laughs> in uh, the Marketing Book Podcast history in 2027. Yeah, it means I'm going to have to keep podcasting, certainly until then. But you know, David Hoffeld, it's important to have goals, isn't it? It really is. And that's one of the things we discuss in my newest book, Sell More with Science. Exactly. That's why I mentioned it. it's a terrific chapter. I don't know if we'll go into it in this uh, conversation, but it's a really interesting chapter on setting goals, but not just setting goals, how the brain works 
to uh, work well with certain goals, certain ways of setting goals. It just it made so much sense. It hurt. There was, <laughs> it's like <laughs> all that science you put in this book. It 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 makes it hard to to argue with you. So before we go much further, though, there's you know every episode is always possibly the first time somebody has listened to the marketing book podcast. So let's talk about something important. Why is a book on sales? on the Marketing Book Podcast? That's a good question, and I tend to have more marketing books, but I really like sales books, and uh, as the saying goes, nothing happens until someone sells something. Only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. (laughs) Okay, now just so everybody knows, everything from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is not in this book. (laughs) Far from it. Those are not the ways to sell. But seriously, the best, most successful marketers are those that have a deep understanding of sales. They understand what the salespeople are doing. They understand the sales process. And even more important than that, they understand the buyer as much as possible. They understand the friction, the challenges, why the buyers are thinking the way they do. And marketers should read at least one sales book a year. I would like to suggest this one. And there's another reason why. This really goes into the buyer and the way the buyer's brain thinks. But also, this is the kind of book where you could read it and then buy several more (laughs) for your sales team. And I think they would really appreciate it. And they would think, wow, I've never gotten a sales book from a marketing person. This person seems to be interested in what we're doing. And uh, I don't know, you know, you're an author, David, You, you probably sell boxes of books if somebody really wants them. So Absolutely, yeah. You can you can purchase Sell More with Science anywhere fine books are sold. There you go. There you go. So I was really excited when I found out you had this second book coming out. I just, you know, l- let me just say this, and I don't expect you to respond, but I love your books. <laughs> and it's it's for the same, they're extremely well written, but for the same reason that I like, um, like Robert Cialdini's books. They're, they're so, so much science in them that, like I said, you can't argue. And in this book... There are 39 pages of footnotes. And I don't know if you even you counted up how many pages of footnotes there are. And I found myself going back to them as I was reading through the book thinking, ooh, ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that uh, research study. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. But it's, it's very uh, carefully done. Can you briefly explain, though, how, how this book is different from uh, the first one, The Science of Selling? Yeah, that's a great question. In my first book, The Science of Selling, which, as you mentioned, came out back in 2016, the book focused on how does the buying process occur, and we looked at aligning how we sell with it. In this book, we kind of turn our attention to the seller and what does science say are the specific things from mindsets to traits to behaviors that you and I can do to be more effective at influencing and selling and really set ourselves up for more success. And the good news is, as you mentioned, with over 39 pages (laughs) of citations, almost 500 different citations to scientific journals. There is a lot science says on the matter. And I, I always like to say the science has improved our world. Imagine what it can do for your sales and marketing process. Absolutely. And the first book, was it was it over 200 bits of research that you cited? We were just over 400. Oh, 400. Okay. So I go overboard in um, all of my books because I, I think... You know what? With all this science that gives such transparency to the process of selling, to ignore that and just try to guess our way to success, 
to me just seems like an odd thing to do. So I'm passionate about reading these journals and bringing this research to light and putting it into actionable sales strategies that people can use immediately to improve their performance. And that, just so the listener knows, that's exactly what he does. And I appreciate you reading those hundreds of, of uh, academic studies or thousands, however many, and then uh, distilling it down for a, a knucklehead like me. So the book is in three parts. Uh, the first part is preparing for sales success. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that, you know, about um, certain mindsets and, and traits that you need to have for sales success. But frankly, I think any kind of success. And then the second part is creating sales success, which I really want to get into because I think there's, well, because we can't get into the whole book, but th- those are two parts that have enormous implication for salespeople, obviously, but also the marketing and the content that is produced in sales and marketing alignment. And the last part is on achieving uh, lasting sales success. Again, the thing about reading your book is that it's almost like you were in my head because <laughs> you were describing how the brain works. I'm like, dang, how, how did, how, oh, I guess they knew. <laughs> in other words, why the, the tricks we play on ourselves and, and why we sometimes uh, fall from our you know our, our goals, but also how to how to how to stick with it. So, what I would like to do though is read a brief uh, section from the introduction. You write in the past, the factors that enabled some people to sell more than others were a mystery. Some salespeople just seemed to have what it takes, while others didn't. Thankfully, we've since learned that's not the case. Over the past fifty years, scientists have conducted groundbreaking research identifying how our brains process information perceive value, and decide whether to purchase one product or service over another. Even more exciting, these discoveries have revealed the specific mindsets, traits, and behaviors that salespeople can embrace to achieve success. In fact, of all the innovations to the sales profession in recent years, none has the potential to make a more positive and lasting impact than basing the way we sell on science. Though this research-backed methodology has repeatedly been proven to boost anyone's performance, many sales and business people are unaware of it. Even worse, many of the most common selling practices today contradict the science. That's why I wrote this book, to provide real-world, actionable, evidence-backed insights that you can use to supercharge your selling, both on the job and out in the world. So, David, the term science is haphazardly thrown around uh, in the profession of selling, uh, not to mention in politics. <laughs> I keep hearing that word used uh, for the last two years. Tell us what you mean by that word, specifically science as it applies to the, the profession of selling. That's a really important question because you're spot on. That word has been used haphazardly in the world of selling for over a hundred years. And often it means sequential. I do this step, then this step, then this step. And I refer to that as science. That is not what the way we use the term in the book. When we say science, we mean evidence-backed, verifiable, peer-reviewed research studies that have been published in serious scientific journals. And so we look at disciplines like social psychology, communication theory, cognitive psychology, social neuroscience, behavioral economics, looking at research that has been awarded Nobel Prizes that is literally transforming our world, and we apply that to selling. So in other words, as we've already talked about with all of our citations, if at any point you want to say, 
I want to see the research behind that idea. You can actually read this research for yourself because I cite it in the back of the book. So there's total transparency. So no faith need be applied <laughs> when we sell any longer because we don't have to guess our way to success or say, well, let's try this out and see what happens. We can leverage the science. And most importantly, it works. I mean, it's, it's verifiably effective. And it really allows all of us, regardless of our current skill level or knowledge, armed with the science, we can really improve anyone's sales performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So going back to uh, a younger David, <laughs> you write that when I first began reading scientific journals and applying what I learned, I was merely looking for insights that would help me deliver a more compelling sales presentations. However, over time, I realized that my point of view was short-sighted. Explain. Yeah, so I graduated with a master's degree and I quickly got into selling for what I thought would be just a short-term position, but I fell in love with the profession. And soon after that, I began applying what I had learned with my master's degree, kind of researching, how do I improve my presentation skills? Because I remember stumbling onto some of that while I was pursuing my master's. And what I found was, boy, the more I dug into it, the more I saw how science spoke not just to improving presentation skills, but to every part of the selling process. It described how people make buying decisions and the specific things that I could do as a sales professional to guide them and come alongside and really serve them and help them through that process. And so it really transformed me. And I realized what uh, the great scientist Carl Sagan realized when he said that science is more than a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking originally as just looking for a strategy here and a little tip there. But as I got deep into it, it's more than that. It brings transparency to the entire process of selling. And it really empowers you now so that how can I sell rightly? How can I maximize the opportunities that I have? How can I really serve those I sell to? And as you mentioned a moment ago, it's not just what you sell, but today it's also how you sell that matters just as much. In fact, many times even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you say it's science is a way of thinking, it makes me uh, flinch a little bit because I hear people I don't know where, but they'll say the uh, the science is settled. And I'm thinking, is that not actually possible? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's not settled. Here's the way the science works. And this what's often create now misunderstanding often creates uh, that response. And that is when researchers are conducting research on decisions, they build on one another's research. So for example, if any of our listeners ever read a scientific journal, the first part of it will say, here's what we know, here's what others have proven. The second part of the journal article is, here's what I did, here's the research I conducted, the experiments, and then finally, here's what needs to be done still. Here's questions we still have. So science builds on one another, and that's how over the years and decades, we're able to come to the place that we're at now where we understand so much about the buying process. But are there still questions? Absolutely, because science is an evolving thing. But there is enough today based on decades. So we're not talking about one or two studies. We're talking about decades of research, building one on another that has led us to this point. And so there's so much science we can leverage today that to just stick our heads in the sand and sell the way our great-grandfathers did <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, back in the day, just using new technologies, which honestly, uh, I talk about this more in my first book, looking at the sales literature from 100 years ago. Here's the reality. You clean up the language and you take away some of the new technologies we're using, the new tools. The sales practices are identical. So we as a profession have not advanced as, many, as much as other professions. And it's because we haven't been relying on science. We've been relying on best practices, which is essentially I mimic the salesperson next to me and because he mimics someone else. And so it, it's hard to advance when you're kind of getting all your strategies from others just like you who are doing the same thing. And so I think science is a game changer. And the good news is now many leading organizations, top business schools around the world are leveraging this science. So I believe this is not only something we can leverage right now, but it is the future of selling. Yes. And let me just... Uh affirm what you just said. There's a great quote on page 102 that I just, I wanted to read because it really helps to explain how so much has changed, uh, particularly for those who might be, um, I don't want to call them science deniers, <laughs> but people who are sort of denying that things have changed. You write, the goal of selling has always been to help prospective clients through their decision-making process and into a positive buying decision. It's the very reason salespeople are needed. For a long time, however, many in the field were taking a seller-centric approach, i.e. a way of selling based on the seller's preferences, not the buyer's, because the marketplace wasn't as competitive and buyers weren't as well-informed. With fewer product or service options available to buyers, it was harder for them to be choosy, and information about product services and competitors was not easily accessible. However, in today's hyper-competitive business climate, with an excess of nearly identical products and services to meet every need, and vast amounts of information just a click away, the power has shifted back to the buyers, and they are rightfully demanding more from their sellers. This is why you can no longer afford to embrace the old practices or even sell the way you did a few years ago. So, David, just a couple questions about the first section of the book. You write that there are two mindsets, and I appreciate you not having 102. <laughs> There's just two, just two mindsets that have been scientifically proven to make a profound difference in sales. Can you... Explain what an achievement mindset is and a growth mindset. Yeah, these are two mindsets that have been validated scientifically now in hundreds and hundreds of scientific studies. So an achievement mindset is your belief in your ability to produce a desired outcome. So there is decades of scholarly research on an achievement mindset demonstrating that trusting that you can do something is actually a precursor to doing it. And these achievement mindsets either enables or limit success because it creates a strong, what researchers call confirmation bias, which makes us alter our actions in a way that reinforces our beliefs about what we can and cannot do. And think of it almost as a mental thermostat that we rarely rise above our achievement mindset. But the good news is as well, science says how much this matters, but it also says that there are specific things you and I can do to naturally grow our achievement mindset. And when we do, we are far more likely to succeed in more meaningful ways. The second mindset we talk about 
is a growth mindset. Now, the growth mindset is simply that through focused effort, you can improve your abilities. It's thinking of your sales skills almost like a muscle mm-hmm. that you need to continually develop. And boy, the growth mindset is such a powerful tool for us to use because when we have this mindset, everything we encounter, you know, whether it's a failed sales call or a successful one, we're learning from it. So we're always growing. We're always improving. And in today's hyper-competitive marketplace, if you're not moving forward, you can fall behind. But in the book, we talk about really seven things you can also do to foster your growth mindset, to make it even stronger. Because when you have both of these mindsets and they're strong, a strong achievement and growth mindset, you are setting yourself up for tremendous success, not only in selling, But the research shows in everything in life, anything you want to pursue, if you can grow your achievement and your growth mindset, you are radically more likely to achieve whatever goals you have, personal or professional. Mm -hmm. And like everything else in the book, it's indisputable (laughs) because of all this research you have there. You know, uh, approximately 100% of the people listening to this interview right now probably have a growth mindset. You know, just the fact that you're listening to a podcast to probably to help your skills or to learn more. And there've been some other books on the show that talk about how like a very large percentage of CEOs have this growth mindset where they're always wanting uh, to learn more. So now there was is one other bit of science about my audience, and this science is settled. Uh, I have the best looking audience in, in all of podcast land. I've seen these people, David, and I've there's I've I've peer reviewed research. Yeah, it's all there. So let me uh, just go to I, having been in the military. I I really uh, glommed onto this part and ask you. You write, in a landmark research study, four social psychologists analyzed the causal factors that prompt people to either give up or persevere when things get challenging. In particular, they looked at whether salespeople remained with their employer or not, and at the key reasons for dropouts during a grueling 24-day Army Special Operations Forces selection course. What they discovered stunned them. A single trait predicted the retention rates for both salespeople and army candidates. David Hoffeld, what was it? It was grit. And this is really interesting because there's so many implications for sales on grit. So grit predicts sales retention and sales success. And what is grit? It's sticking with the goal and continuing to work at it even when things get tough. And in the book, we talk about the two really essential elements of grit, which is persistence and passion. And we talk about how do all of us get even grittier? Because just like mindsets, whether you have a growth mindset or an achievement mindset or you have grit, how do we strengthen it? Because it's not good enough just to have one. How do we get even stronger in that? Because when you do, again, it will set you up for more success. So when it comes to sales traits that matter, science says grit matters probably more than most of us think. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, assessments in here. And the other thing that I liked about the book is you would say, uh, someone reading it might think, okay, well, that's just not how I am. (laughs) But then you go on to say, oh, but you can actually improve it. You can actually dial that up. So dang it. Um, And just so people know that we're talking, you know, for those listening in the American South, I know I'm going to get letters about this. We're not referring to the corn-based breakfast food called grits. So 
chapters are four and five were my favorites, as I mentioned earlier. So I want to ask you um, some uh, some questions about that. I want to go to page 101 and ask you again, David Hoffeld, what is the most challenging part of selling? Yeah, what the research shows is the most challenging part of selling is buying. So <laughs> buyers right now are overwhelmed. And if we think about it, why wouldn't they be? There's so much information out in the marketplace. And often when they talk to salespeople or look at marketing messages, they're conflicting. And so they say, well, what do I do? Because no one wants to make a bad decision. And so right now, buyers are paralyzed and they often choose no decision. They just stick with the status quo because it's very difficult for them to make a buying decision they're going to feel good about. So they often don't. But that gives us a tremendous opportunity because when we can understand, well, how does the buying decision occur and align how we sell with it and really bring them confidence and clarity throughout that decision process, boy, this can set you apart from your competitors in some very significant ways that can really ramp up your ability to sell more. Yeah. And actually, the next page, you write the fact that your potential clients are struggling to make the right purchasing decisions presents an opportunity for you to serve them in a uniquely meaningful way. How so? Yeah, because oftentimes we've said in sales that the goal of a salesperson is to help people buy. But now then the fundamental question comes up, well, how do people buy? And that's when the room gets very silent and it gets very awkward. The good news is, though, science has told us that. We don't have to guess. We know exactly how the buying process occurs. And what the science shows, and this is from the 1950s, researchers building on the research studies from the 50s up until today. And that is that the the way a big decision, like a buying decision, is created is through small strategic decisions that are aligned with that larger decision to purchase. And we know what those decisions are, those small ones. And when you are proactive in your sales and your marketing messages and address those specific commitments, it guides people through the buying process, makes it simpler for them, and that gives you a huge competitive advantage today. So science tells us not only how the buying process occurs, but the specific things you and I can do when we sell to align with that process. Well, let's get into it. Uh, Let's talk about how to align the way you sell with the way people buy. Let's let's talk about the six whys that I loved it in the first book and you 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 go into it here again. Really I for me this was like the the uh the spine of of the whole book. Mm, yeah, the six whys we introduced it in the science of selling, but I wanted to go more in this book into application yes. of it. And that's what we really focus on. So what are the six whys? These are six specific questions that represent the mental steps our brains must go through when forming a buying decision. So if one of these whys isn't committed to, the sale never occurs. And if all of them are committed to, and you're talking to a group of buyers who have the means and authority to make the buying decision, they will. So what are the six whys real quickly and rapid fire? I'm well, actually, share them. David, uh, before yeah. you get into them, they don't actually have to be in this order either, do they? 
That was what I was going to say actually oh, okay. next. Yeah. They don't have to be in a numerical order that I'm going to share them in in a moment. So because selling is messy and our brains are, well, just as messy, <laughs> uh, they often can happen in different orders. Sometimes right. people, your buyers might walk in with one or two of these already have they've committed to, mm-hmm. other times not as much. So it's really understanding where they're at. But the six wise gives you a framework to judge what do I need to focus on next in my sales process? And it eliminates all of the guesswork because it literally allows you to understand exactly where the buyers are in their buying process. Well, let's go. Take us on a journey. Okay, let's talk about the six whys. First one is why change? This we found is the foundational one because until buyers are at least curious about change, they'll often be very resistant to your attempts to try to compel them to do so. Next comes why now? Then why your industry solution? In other words, why can't I just design a product or a service on my own? Maybe it's not as good, but I'll have more control. It might cost a little less. Why do I need your industry so you and your competitors at all? Fourth is why you and your company, then why your product or service, and and then last is why spend the money. There's only usually a limited amount of funds, so why should we invest in what you're offering versus something else we might need as well? Why should we spend the money? When you look at those six whys, You can apply them to your sales process and the implications there are huge because what happens with almost all of the salespeople and companies that I work with is there's one or two of those whys that are costing you the majority of your sales. And once you identify what that is, you can be very strategic in your marketing messaging and your sales process to proactively address and answer and gain commitment to that why. And when you do that, one thing always happens, sales go up. Mm. And you could actually, uh, just even beyond sales and market, I mean, you, you, you could change your product. You could determine there's certain other offerings uh, that you need just by looking at it through these six lenses. Exactly right. I mean, the implications of this, and you can align your sales process with it, but it gives you that framework to understand how does the buying decision occur. And because it's backed by science, it's incredibly powerful. We found over the years when people start looking at sales and marketing through the lenses of those six whys, they become more effective at guiding their potential clients through their buying process, but also sales cycles often speed up as well. Why? Because you're helping them make the buying decision as opposed to more of a traditional way of selling where you're guessing at how the buying decision is occurring and often you guess wrong and you get in the way of it. With the six whys, in fact, you can apply this even in long sales cycles. Well, you'll say, okay, which of the whys have we already got commitments to? Well, these few. Okay, now which ones haven't we got commitments to? Because that's what I want to focus on on my next sales call with these potential clients. So it really forces you to align what you talk about, how you're selling with exactly what your potential clients need in that moment. And this deep alignment with buyers is really mission critical because the closer your way of selling is aligned to how your buyer's brains form buying decisions, the more effective you'll be. And the opposite is true as well. The further away your way of selling is from how the brain forms a buying decision, the less effective you'll be. So Mm -hmm. this is the foundational element of what creates 
failure or success in selling. And now we know what that is. So no longer is it just lip service when we want to sell the way people buy. When we don't know how people buy, well, how do you do that? With the six whys, we have a framework. And once you start applying this, good things happen and they happen pretty quick. Yeah. You know, it just seems like these six whys you could put up in some marketer's cubicle wall. (laughs) And as this is a reminder, are you addressing these in the content? You know, in, in all the communications that the the company's doing, you know, and the the why change. Um, it was interesting because you talk about how it's important to convey that sticking with the status quo is much riskier for a prospect than than moving forward with whatever this positive change. And it just seems like a lot of companies may not be focusing on on explaining that. And then the why now. I think in the book you mentioned uh, time kills all deals, <laughs> something like that. But there are reasons why companies should be moving soon. Absolutely, yeah. The longer they procrastinate, priorities shift, turnover occurs, new situations arise. And so oftentimes every company on the planet wants to speed up sales cycles. Even if you have a long sales cycle of years, wouldn't you like to cut a few months off of that? Everyone would go, absolutely. Time is not <laughs> right. a friend in selling. So the six whys kind of give us insight on exactly how to do that. And they also help with that sales and marketing alignment as well. Because the problem that that I see, and we've helped a number of very successful companies align sales and marketing around these six whys, is when you talk about alignment, what are we what are we collaborating around? What are we aligning around? And mm-hmm. then well, that's where the conversation usually stops. Because how do you align unless you're aligning around something that everyone agrees on? When you use those six whys, it's incredibly empowering because now sales and marketing can collaborate together and marketing can address those six whys uh, prior to the sales even getting involved or setting the table for those conversations. And now it's incredibly useful and you have something to talk about rather than talking against each other. And we've seen just an amazing amount of success when sales and marketing align around the six whys. And the reason it works is because what you're focused on isn't sales or marketing. You're focused on your buyers. Yes. And how their brains form a decision. And that's the key. Yes, absolutely. Do you see a lot of companies uh, struggling to get their sales and marketing aligned? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is a major problem. In fact, many of them try and then they give up because they have a hard time agreeing on even fundamental things. But what I've also seen is once they begin to leverage, in this case, those six whys, it opens up, they have whole different conversations now. Now it, it goes to, okay, how do we address why change in our marketing messaging? How do we set the sales team up? And then there's this feedback loop. Now we're collaborating around something instead of accusing one another or getting more confrontational, which is often how those conversations go after just a couple meetings, because sales wants one thing and marketing might want another. But when you focus on the buyer, now we're all going in the same direction and it's the right direction. Now, I don't want to add to your plate, David Hoffeld. I know you're very busy. Uh, You're running a business. You've written these books. But if you wrote a book about aligning sales and marketing, I know it would do well. <laughs> There's a couple of reasons why. One is that there haven't been a whole lot of books on the show or that I've found about. I've had pretty much two about that out of almost uh, 400 episodes. And the fact that you have a sales background 
would make a lot more companies receptive to it than a marketing person. I'll give you an example. There was one book on the show years ago by Tracy Eiler and Andrea Austin called Aligned to Achieve. And they talked about how they got marketing and sales aligned at the software company they were working at. Andrea was head of sales, excuse me, uh, yeah, and Tracy was head of marketing. And they, it was really, really well done. And uh, But but I, I see that a lot. So uh, I know you have plenty to do, but I was just thinking maybe if if there's a if I gave you book ideas, maybe we wouldn't have to wait till 2027 for you to <laughs> for you to come back. So uh, anyway, and there was another book on the show. The other one was um, Creating Togetherness by uh, Jeff Davis. So the the thing I wanted to mention about number three, which is why your industry solution is one that, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we actually talked about in 2016, which was a lot of businesses think of their competition as other providers of very similar services or products, right? Yeah. But the truth is, your industry solution, so your, let's say, sales training, there might be companies out there that think, you know what, we're just going to buy his book. We don't need to have him come in and help us train. So in other words, they, that's, that's your competition. There's all kinds of things besides just your narrow industry solution. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so it's really about expanding how we view competitors in general. So oftentimes we fall into the trap of viewing our competition as other organizations just like us, and we focus on them. But those are often not the biggest competitors you have. The number one competitor you have by far is nothing. You lose more business. I lose more business to nothing than the someone. People just default to that status quo bias. Mm -hmm. The second one often is them just doing a version of what you offer and saying, well, this will be good enough. And so it causes us to expand our viewpoint of what is a competitor. A competitor is anything or anyone that could take business from you. And often once you open your eyes to that, now you start asking again different questions and you say, okay, and you start seeing things a little differently and that can help you position yourself more effectively. And, and that's what those six wise do. They help give you a, a view of the entire buying landscape so you're not blind to anything. And you can really address how you can really serve and benefit your potential clients. So it's all buyer-centric, but we're using science to really understand our buyer. And that's the key is it's all about them. And that's why I am so passionate about this approach because it's the opposite of traditional, more seller-centric yes. approaches that are so focused on the seller. How would I want to be sold to? Or I'm going to mimic Bob in the in the cubicle next to me and just say whatever he's... <laughs> and who is that based on? It's based on, well, the sellers. And I say we want to focus on the science because it not only brings clarity, but it also keeps our focus on the only group that it should be focused on, and that's those who will be buying from us. Yeah, and you know what's... Uh I, I kind of have to chuckle to myself. The six whys, it's almost like you're tricking people into focusing on the customer <laughs> because the default <laughs> is always to focus on ourselves. So that's why I think it's just uh, even more ingenious. So number four, why you and your company? Number five, why your product or service and why spend the money? All great uh, arguments to to be made there. One thing I wanted to ask about before we move on is talk about the importance of conducting a win-loss analysis after every sale using the six whys. I got the impression that this has worked particularly well for your for your clients. And I'm also wondering, is it just because companies aren't doing win-loss analyses anyway? 
Yeah, it's an important point. You can use the six whys in so many ways, but none are more impactful than when you use them in a win-loss analysis. So a lot of companies aren't doing win-loss analysis currently, and the ones who are usually aren't that excited about them because they don't get a lot of value out of them because oftentimes we resort to guessing. Why didn't they purchase or why did they purchase? Most salespeople aren't really sure, and for good reason. How do you judge that, really? How do you judge why you lost the sale because often the clients don't say to you here's why i'm not purchasing and they're not usually that transparent they just go dark and so how do you assess that the six whys are the framework so you can say okay when it comes to lost sales for example which of the six whys did i not get a commitment to and as i mentioned earlier you're going to find that one or two of those whys are costing you the majority of your sales and now you get really strategic and you start collaborating within your organization how do we address and strengthen our commitments to those whys from a buyer's perspective also for wins this is something we often don't think about but when you look at why are you winning, which of the whys resonated the most? And you start to uncover, okay, what is it that buyers see is different about us? Why are they choosing us? And that can also inform new product or service offerings, how you position yourself in the future. Okay, this seems to really resonate and you can share that information within the organization. So the win-loss analysis is something everyone should be doing and you want to use those six whys because I guarantee you the insights you will glean when you use that framework will help you be very strategic and improving. And it really will tell you what's working and what isn't. Mm, yeah. So let's, uh, let's move on. I wanted to uh, mention something from page 118. You write that 80% of buyers state that the meetings they have with salespeople provide no value to them and waste their time, period. <laughs> Talk about the right questions, not just any questions, but the right questions that you could be asking in order to convey more value to buyers. Yes, I think this is such an important thing because what we want to focus on is the presentation versus the perception of value. And that's what that survey is speaking to. Buyers will say, when I meet with salespeople, they don't give me any value. When you talk to the salespeople, they say, well, no, I'm I'm sharing value after value after I'm doing everything to show them all the value we can provide. So there's this- But could that mean that they're simply sitting there talking about their product? It certainly could. Oftentimes, it's a problem with how we're selling. But I think an even larger problem that many overlook is that they are presenting a lot of value, but buyers aren't perceiving it because we're not mm. making it easy for them to perceive. We expect them to connect the dots, and oftentimes they won't. And what the science shows is there is a type of questions that we can use. We call them second-level assessment questions mm -hmm. after you present some value that prompts your potential clients to think through what you've just shared and verbally respond to it. And what the research shows is when you do that, the perception of value now meets your presentation. In other words, they perceive what you're presenting. Because most salespeople, what they do is when they present value, they'll say something, if they say anything at all, a question like, does that make sense? Or do you have any questions about what I just shared? And of course, neither of those are that helpful. Instead, we want to use these second level assessment questions that really prompts our potential clients to think through 
what we're doing. So for example, after you share some value, you could ask a question uh, like this. This is just one example as a jumping off point where you would say, based on what I've just shared a moment ago, which of those do you think would be most impactful for your organization? Or based on what we've talked about over the last few minutes, how do you think that would benefit your company? Now, what are you doing? You're prompting your potential clients to think through, okay, how would that impact us? And then verbally respond. And they might say, boy, I'm not sure if it would. And then you can clarify. Or they might start telling you about all the great ways that what you're offering can really help them. And then who's selling who at that point? Right yeah. now, you, you've given them some of the, the load and they're going to carry it across the finish line for you. But the key is, think about when you present high levels of value, how do you know that your buyers are perceiving what you're sharing? And if you're not asking a second level assessment question, most likely, I want you to assume they're probably not perceiving everything you're sharing, at least the way you want them to. But when you ask these simple questions, and in the book, we guide you in a number of examples, mm -hmm. stories, and exercises to begin using them, it, it will transform. If you change nothing else in your sales process, but you start using these questions strategically, it will take your sales process and your presentation to a whole nother level. Yeah, and you even have uh, have it where you 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 show two options and you ask the reader, okay, which one is the right one? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, that's probably some secret mind trick you've got going on there. But I paid attention. <laughs> if you have time, could you tell the story uh, that was on page one twenty two and one twenty three about the the CEO? You were training this company, or you were pitching a company, I guess, or selling to them. And it's a situation I've been in so many times where the CEO might be sitting there, not saying a word. With their arms crossed, what? <laughs> how did you turn that around? Yeah, so this is where these questions I saw it lived out right in front of me, and this at the time was this is a number of years ago, but it was the biggest sale that I had ever closed at my firm at that time, and so I had worked within this organization, got all of the buying unit to choose our uh, training solution, except the CEO, and for good reason, there was none at that time. They were looking for a new CEO. And so they brought this gentleman in. And about three weeks after he joined the company, I was presenting to him. I had everyone else in the buying unit was uh, in favor of moving forward. But as I met him and presented to him, he seemed totally disinterested. He wouldn't even look at me. His arms were crossed. It was not going well. And I was using every rapport building strategy. And I know a lot. I was using all of them and nothing was working. They were just bouncing off him like little pebbles I was tossing. And after I showed a little bit in the presentation, some of the main value that we could offer them, he's still sitting there with this stoic look on his face, not looking at me, arms crossed. I asked him this question. I said, now, if you were to adopt this training solution, how do you think it would benefit your company? And he thought for about five or six seconds. I could literally see the wheels turning in his mind. And you didn't have any started, other tricks at that point, did you? <laughs> no, I was. I, this was an this was an act of desperation almost. Yeah. And so I asked him that, and he then started talking about the value that we would provide him based on what I had shared. And what happened was his whole body language shifted. He started looking at me. He started smiling. A moment later, I had him laughing, and the environment in that room radically changed. Now, did that question earn me the sale? I don't know, but I'm so glad I had it when I needed it because I shudder to think what would have happened had I not asked that question. What was really going there 
from a psychological perspective, once he started thinking through, once I forced him literally through the question, I directed his mind to that value and he thought through and he said, okay, this really does provide some meaningful value for us. Everything changed for him. And we closed the sale less than about a week later. But that's the power of these questions. That's one isolated example, but there are literally thousands from the companies I've trained that when you use these second level assessment questions, they will transform your sales process. And they're so easy to use and buyers love them once you start using them. Yeah. You know, it brought to mind the notion of uh, in sales, uh, no is my second favorite word. So even if you got a no, at least you would have known you know, you would, you would have been much further along with a decision. Exactly. Yeah, because the questions will reveal either maybe the buyers don't understand something you shared, and then you'll be able to clarify that. Whereas if you don't ask the question and we just assume, which is what often happens, we may assume wrongly, and that could cost us a sale that we could have gotten. So again, it really helps align how you sell and the way you're interacting with buyers with what's really going on between their ears. And so that alignment is so key. And again, that's what that science does. It brings that transparency to the sales process. No guesswork required. Yeah. So one other thing I want to ask about, big thing, uh, and then a couple other questions, but um, explain what you mean when you write that the way you frame an idea a behavior or a situation during the sales process shapes whether your potential clients will choose to embrace it or not. And then, and then let's talk about reframing. Yeah, this is such an important thing because this is something great salespeople will develop this skill really through trial and error, oftentimes over decades. But here's what the science shows us. And what it shows is that all of us can skill up in this area in a matter of days once we know a couple of these principles. But what science says is the way something is presented heavily affects our impression of it and the decisions we make about it. And this applies to everything. In fact, Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, a cognitive psychologist, he wrote that we are frame-bound rather than reality bound. In other words, our frame, our point of reference, our perspective, so skews our thinking and our perception that it shapes how we interpret everything. One way to think about this is what a Alice Eisen, a researcher at Cornell, refers to it as almost like putting on rose-colored glasses. When you put on rose-colored glasses, if that's your frame, then everything looks rosy. And so all of us can relate to working with a potential client and they are stuck in a frame that is skewing how they perceive what we share with them. And it's not in their best interest. So the frame is a problem. And reframing is the process of guiding them from that unproductive for them frame and into a more mutually beneficial frame that will help them see really what you can provide them and help them understand their problem rightly. And the ability to reframe is mission critical. And once you understand the framework we provide in the book, which took over three and a half years of research and testing to develop on our part, once you understand that and practice it for about an hour or two, here's the amazing thing. I can shave one to two decades often of trial and error within about an hour or two once you learn the framework. So this is a hack that once you embrace it and practice it for a little bit, it becomes second nature, it's very easy to use, and it's incredibly impactful because you can use it to reframe 
any situation, idea, or perspective with not just your buyers, but this you can use in other parts of your personal and professional life as well. (laughs) So true. So true. These are so powerful. And as I read through these, I, of course, I thought, I see this all the time. I, with effective marketing or sales or, or, or the selling of an idea. Let, let's talk about a couple of them. One of them uh, is uh, that I've seen in you know, Dr. Cialdini's book as well, but social proof. Talk about how uh, in, in a sales situation you can use social proof to, to reframe something for someone. Yeah, social proof, what it is, it's a a principle that has been studied. I've read research on it from 1908. So this has been studied now in thousands and thousands of studies. And just recently, Wharton Business School came out and said that social proof is the number one way, their words, that businesses can establish trust. So this is not a fly-by-night sales strategy, as so many are, that here today, gone in a couple years, or it doesn't work anymore. This has been around for, well, it's been working for as long as humans have been around. But what social proof is, it connects the persuasiveness of an idea with how others are responding to it. It's why we're on, it's why we're all drawn to best-selling books or blockbuster movies or businesses with a lot of satisfied customers. We say, well, if a lot of people like this, it must be good. And when you introduce and frame your ideas with social proof, people are far more receptive. And what's also really interesting, we talked about why change a few minutes ago. Social proof is a powerful frame to use when you want to introduce change because social proof lowers our perception of risk in embracing any kind of idea or behavior. So it is a powerful frame that all of us can use. And there's so many ways to use it through narrative, which we talk about in the book, or even simple phrases, things like what many companies do when Mm -hmm. they're in your situation is they'll often do, and then we share whatever comes next. But it lowers that perception of risk and people are in a highly receptive state when we frame our ideas, our recommendations, with social proof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you go through all of them. We don't have time for all of them, but the social proof, contrast, positive outcomes, uh, loss aversion, and existing beliefs. Let me just ask you about positive outcomes and loss aversion, because loss aversion it seems like that's the second most powerful one. But positive outcomes, talk about that. Uh, I, I guess uh, particularly you talk about uh, drills versus holes. Yeah, we we talk about that because oftentimes when it comes to positive outcomes, salespeople and marketers are very good at talking about them. What we want to do and the focus there is aligning the way we frame those positive outcomes so they resonate deeply. And we share a number of exercises and stories and studies in the book that talk about ways that often when you talk about positive outcomes, no one cares. But if you frame it slightly differently... And so it resonates more. Now everyone cares and they act in accordance with it. So the question is not are you sharing positive outcomes or not, because almost every sales and marketer is. The question is how do we frame those positive outcomes so they resonate with those you're trying to influence? And once you start looking at positive outcomes through that lens and you start asking different questions, it can transform the way you introduce them, the way you share them. And once you do that, now people care more because people don't just want to know about positive outcomes or buyers don't just care about generic positive outcomes. They want specific outcomes that are going to matter to them. What are those and how do we frame them? And that's what we talk about in the book. Yeah. Let me just quote from page 148. You're right. The more a message aligns with what actually matters most, 
to the audience, the more persuasive it will be. And then uh, further down, this is big implications for marketing here. Many salespeople do not obtain an adequate understanding of what truly matters to their buyers, so they are unable to explain how they can deliver positive outcomes in a way that resonates with potential clients. And then the next page, and this is the uh, this is the hard medicine to swallow for some folks, but you write, remember, buyers do not necessarily care about or want to buy your product or service per se. They care about achieving the results that matter to them with whatever product or service will do that best. As the legendary Harvard Business School marketing professor Theodore Levitt put it, people don't want to buy a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. So real quick, talk about the power of loss aversion. I, I seem to recall it's fear of losing something is 10 times more powerful than gaining something. Uh, 100%. So it's twice as powerful, twice as more powerful in the research studies. A number of them in cognitive psychology and neuroscience have shown that it matters quite a bit more. So loss aversion really speaks to, and this is something that we often don't talk about in sales and marketing. Positive outcomes, we, we all talk about that, but we often don't frame it as well as we could. Loss aversion, we often ignore, but this talks about what buyers stand to lose by not acting on what you're recommending. And this is incredibly powerful because when you can share with someone what they stand to lose, that creates urgency. That also addresses that why should I consider this change? Because though positive outcomes will motivate us, loss aversion will motivate us at a two to one ratio that research (laughs) shows. And so if we're not leveraging it, and that's the question, are we leveraging loss aversion? If you're not, it's a powerful frame that you can use to help guide people and really thinking through their situation more accurately and understanding the implications of not changing because change implies risk. What loss aversion does is it shows your potential clients that not changing is even more risky. Yeah, like they're standing on an anthill and it just seems like loss aversion is an ingredient that could be sprinkled into uh, some or all of those six whys. Yeah, for sure. I, I Especially in the why change and then why spend the money as well. That yeah. number six. But yeah, you can, these frames, you can integrate them with everything we've talked about so far and it helps you be more persuasive when you're kind of sharing uh, your ideas and getting those commitments to each of those whys. Great. Well, just a couple other quick questions. I appreciate uh, how generous you're being with your time. You write, uh, I guess this is on 166, you write that despite the positive impact stories have in the selling process, most salespeople underutilize them or don't use them at all. Can you talk about how best to use stories in selling and uh, perhaps the science behind why stories are so unbelievably powerful? Yeah, stories are an underutilized tool. You're exactly right. And what stories do is they aid in retention. Stories are often one of the few things that will actually be remembered after a sales call is completed. Also, stories bring your value propositions to life. It's one thing to share about what you offer and the value it provides your potential clients, but a story takes them into the future and allows them to see how others like them have benefited from it. So it really transports them. And stories capture our attention to even short narratives. So I'd encourage salespeople, when you share something about your organization or your product or service or some assertion of value, how can you wrap that in a narrative? Another way to think about it too, 
is looking at those six whys when you want to gain commitments to them or address the foundational ideas that will enable a commitment, how can you use a story there? And one of the best tools or ways you can do this is through collaboration with others in your organization and talk about, okay, how do you address why change? Do you have a story of maybe a potential client that has made this change and the outcomes that happened? And then you can condense that story down to keeping it short and concise and impactful and remove anything that could be distracting. And you can deploy it in your sales process. But oftentimes, we are not utilizing stories because the science is just overwhelming. (laughs) Narratives, and we talk about some of the studies in the book, narratives compel us to act. Facts often don't. Yeah, go back tens of thousands of years. We were using stories before we had anything to um, write down or before we were using, you know, other means of, of retaining information. So it's it's uh, interesting. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, there's a few other things in here, but last thing was uh, page 208, you, you talk about a Gallup poll uh, that asked people to rate the honesty and ethics of various occupation groups. And you talk about the highest ranked professions were uh, nurses, medical doctors, grade school teachers. And then you talk about the bottom sat business executives, advertising practitioners, car salespeople, and members of Congress. Now, you know, I'm in the marketing world, you're in the sales world, and no matter how bad it gets, David, we're still above people in Congress, okay? <laughs> so that's, that's, that's what fills me, you know, that's, that sustains me. But I, I, um, I have to laugh, uh, years ago, I worked in advertising for many, many, many years, and uh, after we moved to Virginia... We went to church, you know, brought the kids to church, and I was chatting with this guy that I got to know. He's actually a commercial photographer, and coffee hour afterwards, and he finally said to me, he goes, you know, I just can't believe that somebody who works in advertising would go to church. <laughs> like, wow. like, you know, you're on the fast track to hell, buddy. And, you know, maybe he was right, but at least I'd be with all my advertising colleagues in hell. But talk about what you mean when you say that integrity Integrity is the bedrock of selling. Yeah, that's such an important point. And we devote a whole chapter in the book to selling with integrity. We look at what is the difference between influence and manipulation? Mm -hmm. And how do we protect ourselves and others? And also, what does science say is the times when we are most likely to be tempted to compromise our integrity? And what can we do about it? But this is mission critical because oftentimes when people give in and embrace a lack of integrity, even for a moment, it puts you on a slippery slope and usually it can lead to other things. But even if you just do it one time and you give yourself that free pass, you've sold something that should have never been for sale. And that is your integrity. There should be no sale that's worth compromising because not only is it wrong, but it will damage your career. And it can often destroy careers for new salespeople when they're just beginning when they embrace this. But what the research shows is that oftentimes when we see major lapses in integrity of a well-known CEO of a large corporation that, that gets kicked out because of some fraudulent activity, but you deconstruct, okay, where did that start? It often started with just some simple basic things where they just gave in to a embracing things that were not as ethical as they should have been. That and wasn't that the first time down. they did that. It, it wasn't the first time. Yeah. And so, in fact, one thing that really surprised me looking at this, some of the research is that you can often predict 
talking about CEOs, the study looked at of who will eventually embrace fraudulent activity or do uh, egregious things by looking at their personal life. Mm -hmm. In other words, a person of integrity doesn't just have it when they sell, they have it, period. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when you want to be a person of integrity, you need to commit to being a person of integrity. And one thing we can do is to think about what will or won't you do. I mean, is there any situation where you'll withhold truth, where you won't share something that you know is in your buyer's best interest to know, but could damage the sale. When you're talking to someone, is there ever a point where you'll disqualify yourself, where you'll say, you know what, this solution isn't the right one for you, or do you try to sell everyone who will give you their money, right? Thinking through that, because those all have huge implications. And I think when it comes to integrity, it's something we need to be proactive on. And that's often the biggest problem is we're reactive. We get into a situation and we go, okay, what do I do here? What you want to do, and we guide you through this in the book and a number of exercises, is think through this, make commitments to what you will and won't do. That way, when you get into those situations, you've already thought it through. You've already made these commitments. And now all you have to do is follow through on what you've already said you'll do. And that often will make the difference between doing something you'll regret the rest of your life or not. Mm, Yes, it's a wonderful chapter. And integrity is the bedrock of effective selling. And I really appreciate you putting that in there. It kind of surprised me at the beginning because after you had introduced your, uh, your approach that works so well, people started saying that is it almost giving salespeople too much power <laughs> to, to yes. manipulate others? So uh, it was it was terrific. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would hope that they would realize that there is a science out there that speaks to every area of selling. And I would encourage them to begin looking into this. It's simple. Like we've talked about today, none of the things we've talked about are overly complex. We make it very simple. But once you embrace this science, not only will it help you be more successful, but more importantly, it helps you really align with your buyers and helps you serve them more effectively. And that is what selling is all about. Amen. What's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book, uh, perhaps that we've talked about, while they're waiting for their copy of the book to arrive? I would encourage them. One simple thing we can do, we talked about those second-level assessment questions. Yeah. I would think of one sales pro- part of your sales process where you present meaningful value. What is a question you can ask at the end of that presentation of value that will guide your potential clients in thinking through and then verbally responding to what you've shared, that one question will often transform your sales process. Yes, yes. I loved it. I loved it. So it's been a while since you've been on the show, so I'm going to ask a question I often ask to first-time guests, which is what books have most inspired your, your working career, looking back? Yeah, well, you mentioned one earlier. When I was 10 years old, I read Dale Carnegie's classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that kind of opened me up to the idea of influence and that it really informs my work today, my passion for it. And that kind of fostered it. But since then, of course, a number of uh, of books. I love the work of Dave Stein, who recently retired, but his books, he wrote a number of them, How Winners Sell and Beyond the Sales Process. He was such a thought leader that really powerfully influenced me earlier in my career, and he was so evidence-based. And so I kind of was, he was kind of a a, a virtual mentor. I met him uh, after the Science of Selling came out, but he mentored me through his works. And I also love Frank Cespedes, 
professor at Harvard Business School, good friend of mine. He writes uh, on sales management, just wrote an amazing book called Sales Management That Works, mm -hmm. just recently came out. In fact, I wrote an endorsement for the book. Uh, it's powerful and, again, evidence-backed, really thought-provoking, and some great resources that will influence anyone in sales leadership. Mm, terrific, terrific. So are there any um, recent or, or upcoming books that you recommend or heard of that you look forward to reading? Yeah, Frank Sesame's book is one that is uh, that just came out pretty recently. One uh -huh. that I know just came out just uh, I think a week or two ago. Daniel Pink's new book on regrets looks fascinating. I haven't uh, read it yet, but um, I've heard him talk about it, and he's a friend of mine. And I know he always uses evidence, so I'm really looking forward to to diving into that here later this month. He's one of those authors where if there's a way to set it up on Amazon, just to say, look, just send me whatever whatever they publish. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just, yes. It's guaranteed absolutely. to be good. What a Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, uh, your website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, you've got some virtual sales training. Talk about what that is. Yeah, our virtual sales training, and thank you for bringing that up, is... And you do other things too, but <laughs> this was, yeah, might be of interest. A, we do a lot, but our virtual sales training is something we developed over about a five-year period, and I wanted to create a training that was based on not only the science of how our brains form decisions, but how our brains learn. And so we created, there's 20 courses on it, there's 145 different modules, but there's videos, there's quizzes and tests that change every time you take them, so you always get a fresh assessment of your knowledge level. And most importantly, there's simulations that allow you to practice what you learn in a real sales environment and get instant feedback. So it's like I'm sitting there next to you while you're trying out, like we talked about today, second level questions as uh -huh. an example, uh -huh. and you get that feedback. So it's very interactive and allows you to practice what you learn. And so, yeah, we've had many companies that have taken advantage of that. And you can learn more about it, of course, on our website, huffelgroup.com. Yeah, and I'll include a link to that. So now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. And no, it's not for a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Although if you do, uh, please send me your mailing address so I can mail you a, a small thank you. Uh, wherever in the world you are. And no, it's not to send me a bottle of wine. Although if you want to, you know, I like Cabernet Sauvignon. But I want you to do one thing for me, and that is to reach out in some way uh, to David and congratulate him on this phenomenal book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Uh, you can send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or just go to his website. If you're in the Minneapolis area, don't go to his house. That really freaks the authors out. But you know, if nothing else, just thank him for putting up with my really stupid jokes. But seriously, the guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners and uh, sharing uh, what you may have gotten out of the interview or if you have any questions. I, I have a feeling David would probably answer your questions. And also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, throughout this book, I've sought to communicate one overarching idea. Science provides real actionable insights that will help you take your sales and your career 
to new heights. A science-backed way of selling also offers a more accurate way of thinking about your approach that will give you an edge in today's hyper-competitive marketplace. On top of that, it will provide you clarity as to why you or someone on your team is underperforming and the mindsets, traits, and behaviors that can boost your or their effectiveness. The book is Sell More with Science, The Mindsets, Traits, and Behaviors that Create Sales Success. The author is David Hoffel. David, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living self-education will make you a fortune. today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.